Well, good morning. And I'm not sure if you um, got the impact of that gospel reading, but Jesus says six times to his disciples, don't worry. Um, that is a rather difficult thing to do. Uh, I find myself being very challenged by this passage, although I know from experience and for the life of my um, adult Christianity, this is one of the most well-spoken on topics that I've ever heard on. It's just such a familiar passage. And so it's interesting that I would pick it because I found myself worrying about speaking on it. Um, so most of you probably, like myself, are acquainted with worry. I was going to try and say something like worry is chronic or epidemic, but then I realized after really reflecting on what Jesus is doing in this crowd of disciples is really speaking on a very normative condition that humanity faces. In other words, worry or anxiety in the terms of which he presents is an ordinary occurrence in our daily lives. And so instead of going into big definitions, which I will in just a minute, I thought I would look and see what Google Images, just generically, pictures worry as. So we're just gonna flip through some of these. I think probably you will get the drift of them. Worry, this, this sometimes we tell ourselves. oh wait, go back to the other one. So this one might be worry as disguised as mental processing. Uh, this one, well, this one's getting a little bit more at worry as chaotic thoughts. Maybe it's a little squirrely, but still we worry because somewhere in all of that, we think actually we're going to land on something concrete. Uh, and then the next one, this one's my favorite one because this is what I tell myself. If I keep worrying, sooner or later, it's going to produce something. So there's all that mechanistic uh, wills churning in my little head. And then the last one is just basically scary because worry does tend to devolve into something that is confusing and clouded. And then this one, I don't think that you need me to say anything about it. I think pretty much you get the drift about worry. So worry or anxiety as it's here in the text, as well as in the text that Todd Pickett spoke on last week. Last week it was directed to an individual, it was to Martha. This week we see it directed in a big crowd, including Jesus' disciples. So worry is essentially an unrest in the soul. It's like a little disturbance within the soul that aggravates the conscious and the unconscious dynamics of human existence. And let me share with you a few things that I've observed worry does in my life. Worry confines me to defensive strategies in order to survive. Worry trusts the illusion that I can control outcomes. Worry narrows my imagination to the domain of what I can think or conceive. 
Worry constantly and only looks at whatever is already known in order to make sure nothing has changed or nothing has moved. Worry captivates my mind in endless rehearsals of all possible scenarios in order to be prepared and ready for anything life throws at me. In these ways, worry imprisons my mind, leaving me impoverished in the ways, in ways that are both dehumanizing and can be destructive. Now you can Google any, any study, psychological or physical or emotional, on worry and stress and anxiety and see the ramifications on your body and on your soul that worry can produce. But essentially for this, this morning, worry is a type of confinement and it leaves us or forces us to live very meager, impoverished lives, almost in a survivor mode. But life, Jesus says, is more than surviving. So I think we would all agree, and the pictures seem to say universally, universally that worry is located in the region of the mind. But in Matthew 6, Jesus seems to say, Worry is not really the problem. What is fundamentally the problem is something deeper or underneath worry. Worry is a symptom that we can detect, either unconscious or subconsciously, in ourselves. But if we followed it down, we would find that it fundamentally roots itself in a general distrust in God and for God's provision for our life our lives. At least that is what Jesus is getting at in this passage. Now Matthew 6 is situated in the Sermon of the Mount, which is Matthew's way of showing Jesus as teacher, rabbi. And what Matthew does in his book, in his narrative of Jesus, is he sets us up to see that Jesus is the new exodus. He is speaking mostly to Jews, and he's going to show Jesus as that rabbi as the better Moses, as the prophet who is to come, who is Messiah. And he is the one that's going to transcend the law and show us the kingdom. Jesus then becomes our new exodus, and he is God's invitation for all of us to exit the former life we've lived in the brutality of sin and death and follow him into a new reality of freedom in the kingdom of God. So Jesus, in the Sermon of the Mount, reconfigures life as we've always known it and births an imagination for what God had originally intended for humanity, a life filled with goodness, companionship, and blessing. So in this passage, Jesus actually takes something very, very simple, like our ordinary basic needs of life, and he's, he shows us some of these aspects as we begin to worry about them. For instance, food and clothing. That's basically our provision. We, have just, we just say every week, give us this day our daily bread. 
And that is a habit of trust we build every single week by praying and trusting that God is going to feed and clothe us. But in this life that has been reconfigured for us in Christ, we will have to confront our relationship to work, to our bodies, and to how we are actually defining the good life. He also confronts the lifespan or time, dynamics of time on earth. So again, we will have to come to terms with our limited lifespan on earth and our own mortality. And yes, the limits of our human strength. We will have to find time to rest our bodies. And lastly, he deals with future. Don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow holds enough. Just be present for today. So in this, we will have to face our fears about the future. All of those unknowns, those outcomes we want to try and control. And we will have to find a way to hold the tension of having dreams and aspirations as well as expectations for our future with the reality of loosening our grip and letting go of everything. Jesus asks really good questions, and I don't know if you've heard them, but if you go back later on and read this text, there's about five of them that I would suggest for you to do the work at wrestling with. These are the questions that you need to ask yourself and listen to Jesus as he asks you. Things like, how am I defining life? Is it more than a body? Is it more than work? Or is this really all there is? Have I determined my value on earth? And how is it that I experience my value among people? What is at the root of my worry? Is it really a fundamental distrust in God and his provision? I will have to be courageous to follow my worry down into my heart and find what's really there unless you want to live with worry. And lastly, what is it that I'm truly seeking? What is my highest priority in life? Jesus uses two very specific little phrases. They're clues that he's really after your heart. He's really after what's in our hearts. One of them is Gentiles. The Gentiles seek after all those things. They live on a purely physical or materialistic plane. And basically that's code for for those who have not yet awakened to the greater reality of God and know by experience that God is good and that he is the sustainer of our lives. Paul will later say that the Gentiles actually live in the futility of their mind because they cannot see or imagine anything beyond themselves or what they can conceive of. So seek in this passage doesn't mean to look for something not present, but rather Jesus is saying, seek that which is present now the kingdom of God, make that the center and focus of your existence. And the second phrase is, oh, you of little faith. (laughs) 
And he uses that term often, and it's not that we don't have faith, but that something in our faith is rather underdeveloped. And so in this passage, there is something that he is saying to his disciples, if they are experiencing worry on these fundamental levels, that in fact, we need to examine our trust in God and find ways to develop trust as a seeker and a follower of God. So it's fairly evident from this passage, and I know you all know it very well, that Jesus questions and what he points to is a matter of the heart, which will seek out its own priority based on what it deems trustworthy. So the logic is here very clear. If the heart's priority is to seek first God's kingdom, deeming God trustworthy for sustainability, then the child of God is relatively at rest with their life, their work, and all these other things. Because, as most of us, I think, would agree, there is a bread one craves that is beyond physicality. There is a provision of covering that is better than the fig leaves we can manufacture, manufacture for ourselves. There is a kind of life experience that is more than merely surviving. There is a timelessness that we all desire that sets us free from the frustrations of the clock and days and seasons of years because God has planted eternity in our hearts. And lastly, there is a hope for a bright future that is certain but cannot completely be known, seen, or understood at this time because we see dimly. But we can trust that one day we will see face to face and our sight will be without obstruction. So essentially, summing up Matthew 6, trust in God as a benevolent parental caregiver and we will alleviate worry in the mind that so easily imprisons us. So the core piece is trust, and you will have to do that inner soul work to discover what it is you worry about and where it will lead. Now trust is an issue in itself because we all have trust issues. It's highly problematic, and probably to most postmoderns, this passage is rather simplistic or very naive. Because most postmoderns in our culture have been shaped with a mind filled with pragmatic systems, analytical lo logic, cynicism, and a general pervasive distrust for anyone outside of oneself. The poet David White asserts it is both arrogant and unsafe to be completely and only confident in oneself when clearly we have been made for others. And to be dependent in a relational love to others. And so we will have to find those ways 
in very challenging, oftentimes risky ways to become vulnerable enough to say, I need you and I need God. I'm going to borrow from the poet Samuel Coleridge who wrote specifically on art that art is like the willing suspension of unbelief, but I think it's a better (laughs) definition on trust. Trust is a willing suspension of unbelief. Trust in God is a willingness to suspend our unbelief in order to trust God with our lives. And so after I examined the entire passage by myself, I realized really we have an ally in developing trust that's buried right here in the passage. And that ally is really very brilliant. Jesus says, look and consider the birds and the flowers. Look is a word that describes the faculty of our eyes. It is the ability to intently gaze upon something. Well, that takes a little time and it takes attention. And consider is a faculty of the mind. In order to think thoughtfully about what it is you are observing, what you are gazing on, in order to notice and then to understand something that that object is sharing with you. The ally then is beauty, found in creation. And I wonder sometimes if we're not so worried and anxious and earthbound because we have not fostered an imagination that is broadened by beauty. Beauty in creation, and I'm going to add the creative arts, because you and I are part of God's good creation, and we, as image bearers, are little creators. So beauty, in terms of creation and creative arts, is something common that we find all around us, and yet so often they go unobserved. Jesus invites us to look for signs of God as they are unfolded in the deep mysteries of our faith in things like trees, which foster their own death, or seeds that grow up and bear fruit. These things are the deep mystery of the crucifixion and the resurrection. They tell us something of God and his power on earth. Beauty is a big enough container to hold things like pain and suffering, things that are illogical and irrational and unanswerable. Just look at the scenes of the raven feeding Elijah in the wilderness, or the burning bush, or the parting of the Red Sea. These things depict in eloquence the power and the beauty and the provision of God to sustain his people. Beauty is a pure gift of luxury that adorns the darkest of halls, the most confused minds, and the hardest 
of circumstances. It is not just an ally, it is a luxury that God graces us with. And the pragmatic, cynical unbeliever will never understand the power of beauty, that it can alleviate the weariness of work and the restless strain of the drudgery of ordinary life by gracing us with an expansive, spirit-filled <laughs> imagination that can see beyond what is already known. Philippians 4 tells us to know that the Lord is at hand, to think upon these things, to look at what is lovely and admirable. And I'd like to end today with a clip from a movie, another kind of art form. <laughs> this is like a visitation of beauty within a very gray, very inhumane prison. Probably most of you have seen it. It is from the Shawshank Redemption. But I love it so much, and as I watched it again, I will just tell you this is one of the most brutal movies and very hard to watch. But in it, there are little droplets of grace because there is one person who is intent in preserving his humanity in the midst of something so ugly and so hard and even unjust. And so this is a, a scene, we're gonna set it up in just a minute, about friendship and hope and humanity in the midst of a brutal prison. It's like a shock of grace. The main character, Andy, comes across some music. It is Mozart's Marriage of Figueroa, and he locks all the doors, and you'll watch and see, and he plays it over the loudspeaker. And I would invite you to watch the eyes and the gestures and what happens as far as transformation to the haunted, dreary prisoners who are no longer living. So take a moment and watch this.
no idea to this day what those two Italian ladies were singing about. Truth is, I don't want to know. Some things are best left unsaid. I like to think they were singing about something so beautiful it can't be expressed in words and makes your heart ache because of it. I tell you those voices soared higher and farther than anybody in a great place dares to dream. It was like some beautiful bird flapped into our drab little cage and made those walls dissolve away. And for the briefest of moments, every last man at Shawshank felt free. It pissed the warden off something awful. Open the door. Something like a little bird fluttered it into our prison and dissolved the walls. As you go into a moment of silence, I'd like you to listen to St. Hildegard's hymn, which is penned in the voice of God. And just listen to these words. I am the one whose praise echoes on high. I adorn all the earth. I am the breeze that nurtures all things green. I encourage blossoms to flourish with ripening fruit. I am led by the spirit to feed the purest streams. I am the rain coming from the dew that causes the grasses to laugh with the joy of life. I am the yearning for all things good. <laughs> 